the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground for Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. Okay, now ordinarily the show is about estate planning and elder law, and the first part of the show is, the second part of the show we talk about politics, history, religion, baseball. Uh, You know, the way things are going right now, we're going to be talking about politics, religion, and baseball. First, we're going to have on, we're not going to take questions about estate planning today, but if you have any questions, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We'll answer your questions about estate planning. Our phones are open. We're on a limited staff, but our phones are still open, and we can sign documents remotely. We can sign your will, you know, in effect over the web, so to speak, by Skype or Zoom or, or one of those things. I'm answering the phones. You might get to talk to me. So first we're going to be talking to Billy Ripken, one of those old-fashioned baseball players. And, you know, he's talking a little bit about statistics and, and the change in statistics over the years. But, again, he's one of the old-time guys. He's not a guy who just looks at all the numbers and tries to figure them around and make baseball players into numbers and statistics, not human beings. Um, then we're going to be talking about a very serious topic. Can you know, a Catholic be a socialist. And we have two points. We have Trent Horn, who's got a book on it with the same title. And, we, you know, we asked Father Paul, our old friend, to, you know, give his two cents on it. So very interesting answer. Okay. First, we're going to start with uh, Billy Ripken about baseball and then Trent Horn about can a Catholic be a socialist. Enjoy. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. 
welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, all of you out there listening to the show, you know I'm a baseball fan. And, and, you know, sometimes I pull up baseball reference. And the statistics that are there, you know, they, they kind of confuse an old-style guy who remembers batting average and RBIs and home runs. So to help explain it, we, we got Bill Ripken of the famous Ripken family. He's got a book out, State of Play. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to confuse anybody else or help you because I kind of sit on your side of the fence <laughs> when looking at some of the old numbers that still make a lot of sense to me. Okay, so what's your, why'd you write the book? What's the point of it? I, I think over the past few years with all the new statistics that you were referring to, all the conversation that swirls around the new schools in charge and all the new metrics and all the new analytics, First and foremost, I just wanted to point out that old school guys like myself um, have always used numbers and have always used information to come up with a plan. And I think that people have lost sight of that or didn't know it in the first place. But the idea of analytics and to confuse an old person or an old school guy that doesn't think about things or break things down and just go plays, I think, is uh, really far from the truth. You know, I think one of the weaknesses is sometimes they think of human beings as computers. Um, There could be something to that. Um, There is a human element to this game. And I think that uh, in a lot of cases, if you continually try to find formulas or run things through a simulation to get an answer, you're missing that main ingredient, which is the human. I've said in this book, that I don't believe one plus one equals two all the time on a baseball field. And I think that confuses some of the newer schools' thought processes because they do believe that the one plus one is always equaling two. But in sport, I don't think these things add up all the time. Can you give us an example of your thought on that? What doesn't add up all the time? Well, for example, a couple of the new thought processes, there's this stat out there called DRS which is defensive run saved. And it doesn't have anything to do with an actual number. It's based on formulas for players that, uh, for players and plays that they make during the course of the game. And at the end of the month or end of whatever, they spit out a term that says, okay, so-and-so is responsible for X amount of defensive run saved. First and foremost, my researchers up at MLB network, where I reside and do a lot of shows for, for major league baseball my researchers don't know how these guys formulate these things. So it's a group outside of baseball that actually comes up with these formulations and then spits out a result. And I sit there and just use the eyeball test. And I watch, for example, Nolan Arenado play third base for the Colorado Rockies. I watch Matt Chapman play third base for the Oakland A's. Both of them are really good third basemen. But at the end of the 2018 season, Matt Chapman was listed at 30 defensive runs saved. And Nolan Arenado was listed at six. And to me, those things just don't add up because you're making the implication that Matt Chapman's five times the defender is Nolan Arenado, and I just can't buy into that. And as I said, these formulas and calculations are done behind closed doors that my researchers at the network aren't even privy to. Let me ask you something. WIR, wins above replacement, what is that? Do you understand it and do you agree with it? Well, it stands for wins above replacement. And there, once again, these are um, sets of people that come up with formulas that my researchers do not know of. 
Um, but they come up with the idea, and their rationale behind it was if you had an everyday big league player, and let's say he was valued at five wins, if you didn't have him during the course of the whole season and you replaced him, this is where the replacement comes in, with a readily available AAA player or a guy that sits on the bench most of the time during the big league season, your team would have won five less games because you were replacing him with a zero-value player. Um, I have big problems with the wins above replacement and the definition of it. As I go back to 2015, Jackie Bradley Jr. of the Boston Red Sox was sent down to the minor leagues or sent down to Pawtucket four times during the course of the year. And yet at the end of the year, he had a 2.3 war, which by their definition, he would have been a wins above Jackie Bradley Jr. because he was the very replacement that they're speaking of because he was sent down to the minor leagues several times during the season. Of course, they may bring it back that management had it wrong. He should have been playing. Well, I don't know how they can make that evaluation. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I, I mean, I get it um, to a degree, but, you know, okay, let's use Gary Sanchez. When he got called up to the Yankees, when he made the big splash, he was called up out of double A. So at the end of the year, I think he was a three-win player. And once again, if he was not in the big leagues, by very definition, he was in double A because he was a young kid. He wasn't ready for the big leagues. And then halfway through the year, he gets called up. So once again, was he wins above Gary Sanchez because he is the actual, by definition, the replacement player that was brought up. All right. Well, you could say he was undervalued when he was in double A. But uh, all right, let, let me ask you something. Let's change the subject. Astros, cheating scandal, any opinions? Well, quite a few opinions. Um, one, they went above and beyond, shall we say, the normal route of competition. I would say in yesteryear, when you played against another team, you sort of eyeballed across the field. Yes, you looked at their manager. Yes, you looked at their bench coach. Yes, you looked at their third base coach. Yes, you tried to peer in from second base uh, if you were on second base to try to get some advantage when looking at the signs. Um, but that was you against them. And that was just part of gamemanship. As soon as you set up a camera in dead center field and zero in on the catcher when he's given signs, you're having code-breaking systems going on. It sounds more like a CIA operative organization than a baseball team. And then relaying to the hitter at real time by using electronics, that to me goes over and above the normal gamemanship that might have happened in yesteryear and you started using some technology in a way that was just flat over the over the uh, line and over the top. What should the punishments be? What, what, in your opinion, what should it be? I didn't mind what the commissioner did because the commissioner sent out a directive in 2017 that if this kind of stuff was going to go on, the manager and the general manager were going to wear it. And basically he suspended the manager and the general manager of the Houston Astros for a full season which I think that's the definition of wearing it. I don't think he could have went after the players. I believe the punishment on the manager and the general manager and all the conversation that has now swirled around the Houston Astros 2017 season, the World Series title will always be tainted, and the individual players that performed well will have a tainted asterisk next to their name and their reputations are going to take a little bit of a hit. So I think that those guys are going to have to know that moving forward. And I think they are serving somewhat of a penalty and had some sort of a retribution thrown their way already. 
Now, I don't know if you know about this. Or you're too young to, to know about it. But in 1951, the New York Giants were accused of having a guy with binoculars in center field who would steal the signs. Well, what, um, what's the I, difference I and what's the same? That, yeah. yeah. Do you have an opinion well, on the difference? And, well, the fact that well, it was cheating. And the fact that it's still being talked about today, for, it was 1951, um, and is it tainted? That's part of the conversation. I don't think any way, shape, or form the commissioner's office could have went through and said, okay, 2017 Astros, we, we're stripping you of your title. I don't think that works because I think we're going to open up Pandora's box and we'll start going through the record books on an awful lot of things moving forward. But the mere fact that when you, you went to 1951 – and mentioned it, the Houston Astros are going to deal with the same thing forever. It, it's not going to go away. The 2017 championship is tainted, and they're going to have to deal with that. DH, I heard you speak on another show about this. What's your opinion about the DH? Well, I think it has to happen in both leagues. Um, it's the only league in the world, if I could say that, um, that has the DH, and that means the National League. If you go to Japan and watch professional baseball, there's DHs. If you go to Korea, DHs. Um, AAA, two National League clubs have an option if they want to use a DH or have their pitchers hit. AA, it's just DHs. A ball, it's DHs. College, it's DHs. High school, it's DHs. So it seems strange to me at this point in time for the National League, the highest level of professional baseball in the major leagues has the pitchers hitting. And when the American League club comes to their park, their pitchers must hit too. So there are guys that have had their first at bat professionally um, in the big leagues that are pitchers that happened last year. So if you have the guys finally getting in a bat in professional baseball and it's at the big league level, I can't see how that would be good for the game or the individuals that have to participate that way. Well, the other side of the argument is they could be hitting in the minor leagues and they could develop their hitting skills. Well, that's not going to happen because they don't hit, hit in high school or college. So if, if, they're, not DH, if they're not hitting as, as players in high school or college, there's no way in the world these guys are going to get drafted and then all of a sudden start picking up the bat. So it, it's the only league in the entire world that has their pitchers hitting. So it just seems to make sense that people are going to have to conform to that idea. The Players Association is never going to get rid of the DH because it's a pretty good paying gig. So if we want offense in the game, and we're talking about offense, pitchers hit about a buck eleven during the course of the year, average all year long. DH has hit about two fifty with twenty five homers. So if we're looking for offense, and just for fairness purposes of having one set of rules, we're the only sport league that only that plays under two different rules as well. The AFC plays the NFC in football. They don't have their uh, punter kick field goals. They both have field goal kickers. They both have punters. Everybody's the same. So it just seems like it's about time that this, uh, the 1972 or three or four, whatever year it was, the DH came into play, the experiment was for three years. I think that experiment proved that it actually worked because it's still here today. So I think it's time the National League conforms over. What about the argument that there's more strategy in a National League game, you know, taking a pinch hitter, putting a pinch hitter in, taking the pitcher out, so forth? I completely disagree with any of that theory. I think the pitching change is harder to make in the American League because you're making the determination if your guy is the best guy on the bump to continue on. In the National League, 
if you're in the fifth inning and you're losing by two and there's one out and there's a guy on first base, the manager automatically pinch hits for his pitcher because it's what the book says to do, and then they move on for there. So I don't buy the strategy. Um, there is no strategy to me if it's second and third and the eight-hole hitter comes up with two outs. You walk the eight-hole hitter to get to the pitcher. You punch him out. I don't see how that's good for the game either. Um, there's no bunting anymore in either leg. So that part of strategy seems to go away either. But I just look at it straight on pitching maneuvers. If you make a decision of, as an American League manager to change the pitcher, you're making it on straight theory that my guy's not good enough to finish this or that guy's definitely better in the bullpen. In the National League, I think some of those pitching decisions are made for you. All right. Now, I heard you on an, another radio show, you're talking about the shift, you know, infield shifts. Now, it's nothing new. I mean, Ted Williams, I think Lou Bedrew invented against Ted Williams in the 40s. What's your comment about the, the you know, some people saying we could sh- we should change the rules about where you can position infielders? Well, I don't believe that, and you're right. The, the new school did not invent the overshift. The new school invented the overshift gone wild. But the ball put in play – since 2012. So the only thing the overshift can affect is the ball put in play. And the new schoolers have a term for that. They call it BABIP, batting average on balls put in play. Well, if the batting average on balls put in play in 2012, when there was 4,000 overshifts, and the BABIP in 2019 was with 40,000 overshifts, was identical, that tells me if you're taking a hit from somebody, you're giving a hit to somebody else. So you might take 30 points off of somebody. That means you're giving 15 guys two points. In fact, there's three left-handers that I cite in the book on the overshifts, Freddie Freeman, Cody Bellinger, and Anthony Rizzo, all faced about a full year of overshifts after the 2018 season was done in their career. So about 700 plate appearances. All three of those guys I just listed have higher averages when clubs play the overshift against them than they do in their career average to begin with. So those guys probably wish that they would overshift all the time against them. So I'm not saying it doesn't work at certain times, but I think it is very problematic when people are on base and we've become so conditioned to watch a game right now where a broadcaster will say, oh, look, that used to be a hit forever, but now there's so much intel in the game, that's just an out because of the overshift. But yet when a ball rolls weakly through a vacated spot, they say something like, oh, it just found a hole. Like I said, if it takes one away, it's given one somewhere else because the numbers, not my numbers, their numbers say that it's the exact same since 2012 all the way through these years of 2019. Do you, do you have any statistics about the you know extra base hits, home runs, to, because they hit the ball the other way or they hit a grounder the other way? Does that take away from their home run power on the shifts? Um, you know what, the shifts, and that would be something that I don't look at because I look at the totality of the overall average. I'm sure that there are people that um, have their uh, degrees in mathematics that say, well, this subset says that the shift works. Um, and that's fine if they have a subset. But that also means that there's another subset that means it doesn't work because if the total numbers, if the total numbers, league-wide, every team play out to the batting average on the ball put in play is the same. Even if it takes something away from some subset, then it's going to be positive 
you know, on another one. I'm not saying that the overshift's not going to climb into somebody's dome. And if there's a guy up there that starts to get frustrated at the overshift and he digs himself into a hole deeper, I get it. But I'm just saying that the overshift on a hole, it cannot work the way people think it does if the batting average on the ball put in play entire league-wide is the same as it was when they first started doing the overshifts going wild with 4,000 of them in 2012. One last question. We're running out of time. But, Bill, why did you write the book State of Play? What do you want the reader to get out of it? I want the reader to have a little bit of education on some of the things that are being used and termed in, in today's game. I don't think watching the game, the game's that different. What I do think is if you listen to the game, it's completely different. So if people start talking about spin rates or the use of the high fastball because this guy has a good spin rate, I want them to understand that Jim Palmer and Bob Gibson and Sandy Koufax all threw high fastballs, and they had an overhand hook to go with it. If people start talking about launch angle during the course of the game, everybody who's ever played baseball has had a launch angle. It's nothing more than the ball coming off the bat. It's not an uppercut swing. It's the ball coming off the bat. People have misinterpreted what launch angle is, and now the assumption is that, oh, look at that swing. Before contact's made, somebody will say, look at that launch angle. No, the ball has not been hit yet. So my main reason for this, and I call it a guide, two reasons. I know I'm not a novelist after I put this thing down, (laughs) but as a guide, I know I had something to say. So if you're watching a game, you hear a term that you kind of question, if you get the book, I think this book has something that will explain some things. And also when I try to explain or when I'm dismissing something I don't like out of the new school, I use numbers and I use information to make my points. I just don't say this is crap. Don't listen to this. I just simply point out reasons why I don't like it, and I try to give numbers and reasoning behind why I don't like it. Thank you. The name of the book, State of Play, the author, former Major League infielder Bill Ripken. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's top-rated lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. I'm still here. Okay, so Beth, you know, can what, what are the questions you hear a lot at the seminars? Well, it's... So often at the seminars, people confuse different documents, which is understandable. So you hear power of attorney. What if if you give someone your power of attorney, what exactly can they do? Can they act as your health care proxy or and then living will always comes up. So could you please make a distinction between power of attorney, health care proxy, maybe living will? 
But um, with everybody, you know, being afraid of going to the hospital or something, it's important to know these distinctions now. Now, power of attorney, um, power of attorney is to make financial, legal, business decisions. So basically, that's a notarized document. And if it's going to be complete, if you're going to give them complete authority, it has to be witnessed by two people. And there you appoint an agent, usually a family member, doesn't necessarily have to be, but 95% of the time is going to be a family member. And that's usually in place. God forbid you have a disabling illness, you have a stroke. Somebody can sign your name, transfer your assets, put them in a trust, protect those assets from a nursing home, try to avoid probate if we're doing a last-minute planning, and you know, try to do the best for you. And, and that's the power of attorney. You choose the person, you choose to handle things, God forbid you suffer from a disabling illness. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily have to be disabling illness. Sometimes you have a 90-year-old person who can't go to the bank, can't do certain things, and she appoints a power of attorney. You may be completely competent, uh, but you appoint somebody to help you with some of your chores and tasks financially and with a power of attorney. And the question is, you know, what kind of restrictions do you want to do on a power of attorney? Do you want to make it full unlimited? Let's say you're 90 years old and you've got a very trustworthy 60-year-old daughter. Well, maybe you give her unlimited authority. At the same time, maybe you're 50 years old and you got a 30-year-old nephew or niece, and, and maybe you put a lot of restrictions on the power of attorney. One of the restrictions might say that the power of attorney can't be used unless a medical doctor certifies that I'm not, I do not have capacity to make decisions on my own. So that's one of the things we can talk about. Again, if you're married, and, and here's one of the important things about a attorney power of attorney. If you're married between husband and wife, sometimes husband and wife thinks, well, I don't need power of attorney between the two of us because I automatically able to sign my spouse's name. No. Power of attorney can be very important. Let's say a husband has a stroke. He has to go to a nursing home. Wife wants to access his IRA, his 401k. She can't do that without a power of attorney if the husband's not competent. Let's say she wants to move the house over into a trust because the husband may be going to a nursing home and she doesn't want a nursing home to get you know, that house. Again, we can't switch a deed of husband and wife to wife or wife's trust if the husband didn't plan in advance, didn't have a power of attorney. So power of attorney is very important. It's, it's very important between husband and wife. It's very important between children. It's a way to protect assets. Now, again, if you give a power of attorney to the wrong person, they can wipe you out. They can steal you blind. So I'm not saying out there to the general public, hey, you got to do a power of attorney. Like everybody should have a will. Because you can't be hurt too much by a will because even if you name the wrong person as executor, you're gone. You're dead. You don't have to worry that much about it. But if you give a power of attorney to the wrong person, they can do bad things to you when you're alive. So you got to be very careful about a power of attorney. But if you're married more than a few years, you trust your spouse, I strongly recommend you do a power of attorney between husband and wife. And if you got a son or daughter that you trust implicitly, put them on the power of attorney. Because you've got to ask your question. If you don't have a power of attorney, one of these crisis situations comes up, the court's going to appoint somebody. So who do you want to appoint somebody to protect your assets, the court or you? And I, I think for the most part, you want to choose the person to be in charge if something happens. Now, power of attorney does not help you with health care? No, it really doesn't. Now, power of attorney can give your agent access to your medical records, which might help a little bit. But if you want somebody to make medical decisions on your behalf, if you can't speak for yourself, then we use a health care proxy. And that's another written document that's witnessed by two people. And you don't necessarily need a lawyer to do it. Every time you're hospitalized, usually the, the hospital gives you the form and asks you if you want to fill out a, a health care proxy. But that's the person you choose to make medical decisions on your behalf if you can't speak for yourself. Um, 
very important document in certain cases. You know, you go into a coma. Um, you know, one of the tough problems, somebody goes into a coma, do you, do, you, do you let them starve to death or you try to feed them? And, I mean, that, that's not an easy decision in some cases. And I mean, somebody's 98 years old, um, some people say, well, let them go, let her go. You know, that that's not easy. And, and of course, in, in a lot of religious observances, you can't starve someone to death. That doesn't mean you have to do extraordinary measures to keep them alive. But you you got to give them food, whether it's tubular feeding or not. And a lot of, you know, in the Catholic Church and in, in Jewish Orthodox, you have to feed the person. You can't starve them to death. So, but these are not easy decisions to make. But the healthcare proxy, the person you choose, can make those decisions if you can't speak for yourself. And that's why you want a healthcare proxy. What's a living will? A living will is not a legally binding, strictly legal document. I mean, not that it's illegal, but basically it's a statement of your wishes of how you wish to be treated, usually in the event of a terminal illness. So the thrust of a, of a living will would be, whether it says it directly or indirectly, the thrust of a, a living will would be, if I'm terminally ill, I don't want extraordinary measures to keep me alive. You could say, I don't want a feeding tube attached. Or maybe you say, I want intravenous to, to, to try to make me comfortable, but I don't necessarily want a feeding tube, whatever. A living will is a statement of your wishes of how you want to be treated, usually when you're making end-of-life decisions. And, and one of the things in my experience, a lot of people sign these living wills when they're you know 65 years old, they're completely healthy, and they look at it a few years, and I'm talking to them about it, and says, do you really want this? And a lot of times they say, well, no, but it wasn't explained because sometimes people just put a living will in front of you and you sign it. And, you know, even then it's not binding on your, on your health care agent. And it's not just that. I mean, all the scientific methods in, in health care change. So you may have something, you know, five years ago that didn't even exist and they could they could really help you now. So if you say, "Oh, I don't want it this or I don't want that," and then you realize, "Oh my goodness, well they they can they can heal me now or they can cure me now." So that's that's dangerous. Yeah, but again, I would strongly recommend that everybody has a healthcare proxy. Soon you have somebody out there you can make the decisions for, and um, you know if you have a healthcare proxy, that person can make the decisions. Though that person can sign a DNR for you. If let's say you're 98 years old and you got cancer, and, and that's one of the misconceptions goes around. I, you know, I want to sign a DNR. Well, yeah, if you're 98 years old and you got cancer, maybe you want to sign a DNR. But you, you got to be careful about that. You know, I had one old doctor I remember used to say, sometimes if you have a DNR, they won't give you the Heimlich maneuver if you get sick in a hospital. I'm not sure that's 100 percent true, but he was trying to make a point to the to the patient client. Don't you know, my client, it. his patients. You know, don't sign a DNR. Unless you're really sure you want to, you're, you're at your end of life, and you know because if you have a DNR, you're gasping for breath at home. The EMS workers are supposed to let you die, and if that's what you want, yeah, you can do it. Nobody really wants to be on a respirator for years, um, you know. And, and I don't like that when people use the term vegetable, but you know what I mean. Um, nobody's a vegetable, you're a human being. But at the same time, some people don't want to be on a respirator forever. But everybody, please stay safe. Um, you know, let's all pray for each other. And thank you for those people who have been sending checks to Father Paul. It's greatly appreciated. It's a tough time to make a gift right now, but we appreciate those people who are sending checks to Father Paul. Thank you so much. And again, you can send the checks to 
our office, uh, we have the checks made out to province of St. Mary, which is his um, headquarters, so to speak. Here in New York. And then they and then in the memo section, you said put for Father Paul's mission and they send it to him. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors and Sullivan, plan now for later. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest has a book out, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? Trent Horn, what's the answer to that question? The answer is no. <laughs> there you go. Uh, now, of course, it, it depends what you mean by the term socialist. Some people will define socialism so broadly as to say, well, socialism entails government providing entitlement benefits to the poor. Uh, now, of course, Catholics can and should support preferential options for the poor in society, but that's not socialism. Socialism is divine, very particularly in the fields of political science and sociology, dealing with government uh, centrally allocating goods and the command control of economies. And that kind of socialism is something the church has uh, denounced for the past 150 years. Now, you know, why is that? Because, you know, to person who looks at it simply, you know, socialism helps the poor. The church is supposed to help the poor. What's the conflict? The conflict here is that the end does not justify intrinsically evil means. So, of course, we ought to help the poor, but that doesn't mean you would be justified in going to a bank and robbing a bank or going to a millionaire's home, breaking into his home, stealing some of his artwork and, and selling it and then giving that money away to the poor. Uh, now, there may be cases where you can take goods that don't belong to you in a case of dire necessity, like if there were a natural disaster and you had to break into an abandoned grocery store for food or medicine, that would be different. Uh, but just justifying theft because, well, I'm doing a good deed. Uh, no, the Church always says you cannot do evil so that good may come from it. And the same is true of classical socialism, which seeks, as Karl Marx sought and even many socialists today seek, is things like the abolition of private property, that for many socialists the ultimate goal is to have a society where there is no rich and there is no poor, 
Uh, everyone is essentially treated the same, given the same wages, even though people are unequal in their talents and what they contribute to society. And so uh, what Pope Leo XIII said in his encyclical Rerum Novarum is that socialism seeks to impose a false equality on the world. And if it does so, the sources of wealth will dry up and men will be poisoned with envy towards one another. So socialism uh, rejects the natural right to private property that we have, that we have the right to acquire property. We are to use it well, but we have the right to acquire it, to give it to our, our children as inheritances. Uh, it, it overrides that. It, it undermines the role of the fam- the primary role of the family as the the cornerstone of society rather than the state. So there's a multitude of problems, the least, not the least of which being that when socialism has been implemented in real life, it has always been a failure and led to the very poverty its critics say uh, justifies it. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, it's just socialism hasn't been tried in, in a proper manner. You know, the people who did it were all flawed and, you know, the countries that did it were all flawed, you know, but socialism really could work. But that's the problem, though. Uh, their assumption is that socialism, and remember, we're talking about classical socialism here, that Marx, Lenin, Mao, and to somewhat of an extent, even people like Chavez wanted to wanted to practice, which is the idea of government uh, producing the vast majority or all goods and services and then allocating those goods and services to people based on what they think that they need. Uh, so the idea, especially under pure socialism, where the idea that everybody works and resources are put into a communal plot and then are, are evenly divvied up, uh, they say, well, it would work if just people acted completely altruistically and selflessly. Uh, it just hasn't been put in the right context yet. But here's the problem. No people are completely selfless, selfless or altruistic. And so whenever socialism is tried, the same common denominator arises, which is fallen human nature that leads to corruption and mismanagement. Uh, so by its very nature, socialism just leads to that. And we see that. I talk about in the book, This one of the earliest examples of this is in the American colonies. The pilgrims originally tried communal farming, and everyone was given an equal portion of the crops that were harvested. Uh, no matter how hard you worked, you always got the same amount of food. So some people started to slack in the food production, and then the crops failed because they, they thought, why bother trying hard? I get the same as everyone else. And it's that kind of inbuilt part of our human nature that shows why socialism, a system built on unnatural, innate altruism, just simply can't work. Now, what about the socialists say, well, take a look at Sweden. That works. Well, Sweden uh, has many positive things. Sweden and the Nordic countries have many things going for them uh, when it comes to their economies, but uh, they also have they have trade offs as well. Uh, so uh, one of one of those is first of all, I need to make clear that Denmark and Sweden and Norway, these countries are not socialist economies. When you rank them, the Heritage Foundation has an economic freedom index that ranks countries based on how free or closed their economies are, how much government plans the economy versus how much private companies are allowed to operate freely, uh, you know, still with government oversight. And according to, to their index, Hong Kong and Singapore are the most capitalist countries on earth. North Korea and Venezuela are the most socialist. And out of a rank of 180 countries, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and Norway rank 14, 19, 20, and 26, respectively. Uh, in fact, the prime minister of Denmark, 
uh, he said this back in 2015. He said, Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. The Nordic model is an expanded welfare state, which provides a high level of security for its citizens. Uh, so, yes, the Nordic model does provide a lot of entitlements to citizens, but there are trade-offs. Uh, for example, there are very high tax rates, and the citizens tend to have lower average incomes than people in other countries like Japan or the U.S. There are long wait times to see medical providers. In some places, uh, schooling is completely operated by the government, so there's no private religious schooling or homeschooling. Uh, there's, there, there are trade-offs with each of these models that people can debate, but the Nordic countries are, are not socialist. They are market-based capitalist economies that have uh, particularly generous entitlement programs. Let's get back to religion a little bit. You know, in the past, I, I think it's kind of died out a little bit, but liberation theology, to some extent, Jesus was a socialist, if not worse. Any comments to that? Right. Uh, this is a strain of Marxism mingled with Catholic theology, particularly in South America and Latin America, uh, that, like all heresies, or at least all deficient theologies, has some truths built within it that we ought to care for the poor, that we ought to uh, combat injustice and work to create just societies. But within liberation theology, the main problem is that it teaches that Jesus' primary goal is to liberate us from uh, temporal harm and exploitation, and that class warfare is an essential part of the Christian gospel to, to, to rid the world of social classes, and that ultimately, in order to free man from sin, we have to create just social structures. In 1984, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith published uh, a, a writing on liberation theology pointing out what Pope Paul VI said, how it has a dangerous tendency towards Marxist authoritarianism, and that its ultimate flaw, Pope Benedict said the same thing in Space Salvi, that you cannot create the new man, you can't make someone spiritually regenerated by just changing political or social structures. It denies the work of the Holy Spirit in that regard. So, And I talk about it in my book, but Jesus was not a socialist because he didn't tell his followers to give all of their property to the government for it to be redistributed. In fact, when two men once came to Jesus and said, uh, Rabbi, my brother won't split the inheritance with me, Jesus said, so this is a case where someone went to Jesus asking for wealth redistribution. And Jesus said, who made me a master over you? Take care uh, that greed not overtake you. So, uh, so Jesus, yes, was, was not a socialist. He preached that we are to practice charity, not socialism or communism. All right. Now, tell the listeners, who are you and, and what else are you doing besides writing this book about uh, socialism and Catholicism? <laughs> Oh, well, certainly. Uh, so I am a, a Catholic apologist. I uh, work at Catholic Answers, an apostolate dedicated to explaining and defending the Catholic faith. I will say that my book has been co-authored, uh, theological insights to this book and, and some historical insights, because I also have an undergraduate degree in history. Uh, my co-author on the book is Catherine Pakalik. Catherine has a Ph.D. in economics from Harvard University. She is an associate professor of economics at Catholic University of America. So we are the two of us together are quite well versed to talk about Catholic economics and socialism. Uh, but but now I operate. I work at Catholic Answers. I write books like this one. Uh, I host a podcast called The Council of Trent, C O U N S E L, and that's available on iTunes and Google Play or for premium subscribers at TrentHornPodcast.com. But I help people to explain and defend the the Catholic faith. 
Just for those who are a little dense out here, Council of Trent, can you explain that? <laughs> yes, it's a play on words, of course. Uh, after, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, uh, the Catholic Church hosted an ecumenical council in order to meet Martin Luther and John Calvin and other, the other reformers' critiques of the Church at that time. And the Church was in need of reform in things like uh, seminary, education, uh, and, you know, in, in other things like that. So uh, the Council of Trent was hosted to meet some of these challenges of the Protestant Reformation. And since my, I'm Trent Horn, I thought Council, C-O-U-N-S-C-L, which of course means advice or, uh, you know, the advice that's given to someone, Council of Trent would be an appropriate name for my own personal podcast. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, I do episodes related to theology and the defense of the faith. Uh, and then on Fridays, I do free-for-all Friday episodes that are just kind of a fun, nice little break before we get into the weekend. Okay, so the name of the book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? The answer being no. The author, Trent Horn, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you for having me. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's top-rated lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer every Saturday morning at 8 on AM 570 The Mission, WMCA. We're interviewing uh, Trent Horn about can a Catholic be a socialist. Father Paul happened to be around. So I thought, you know, listen, he's got a vow of poverty. He's a Franciscan. He's supposed to help the poor. Uh, what was his opinion on the matter? And, and here's what he said. I'm not sure it's something that, that goes together because um, socialism and since I have a, you know, East European background as well uh, from Poland and the the socialism um, never walked there and never walks anywhere at, at some point. Uh, being a Catholic and a socialist, it's like to, to say that Jesus Christ was a Marxist or something, which is totally wrong. So no, that's not gonna, that's not gonna connect together. And also we have to always remember that socialism, uh, maybe, you know, there's a, a, a kind of a frame like, um, oh, let's give everything to everyone. That's not possible because if you if you don't have money, you can't give money that you don't have to help others. So we have to find a way to to have that money first, and after you can help others. Socialism is is all about promising people everything, but having nothing to offer. It's it's all about promises, and we we've seen this in the history of socialism. So uh, being a Catholic and a socialist at the same time, it's a very tricky. Let me ask you something. You have a vow of poverty, so what do you have against socialism? Good question. Well, poverty it's, um, is something that is, uh, in, from a very spiritual perspective, is that we are um, in some kind of um, 
a decline of of going for um, for money or for possessions or for private possessions. So we can spend that energy for people who who, who need us as a human being uh, to talk to them, to to pray with them and for them, because the, the desire of collecting things. It, it, it absorbs a lot of your energy and that energy you can use for a different reason. So those vows of poverty, help, that, that's all about helping us to be with people for them and not to overanalyze or worry like how much do I have and how much do I want. That's not, that's not, our, our, uh, um, uh, that's not our life. And, and the gospel is all about you know, having trust in God that he will help us at some point. And if he sees that we are in need, he's going to provide us help. Let me ask you another question. Can somebody in today's world in the United States be a Catholic and a Democrat? Ooh, few, few. <laughs> Mr. Connors, I love your questions. Well, the answer is no, because, well, let's say uh, uh, life, we are... Um, at some point, we are advertising for life. Uh, we are advertising for people to have a right to live, to have a right to have a child and uh, to protect that life. Um, it's not possible if, if you're a Catholic and Democrat because you, at some point you may realize that you, you are acting like your faith is all about what you like, so you take it, and if there's some you don't like, you leave it. But uh, a Catholicism, it's not about like a grocery store when you pick things that you like. It's a whole package. And if that package is not working for you, you have to ask uh, yourself, are you a Catholic? Are you still a Catholic? Because Catholicism, it's not about picking things you like. It's the entire, it's a whole concept of being and following the gospel. And if, if at some point you think that Catholicism is about a Sunday Mass, but still you can join uh, Planned Parenthood, there's something wrong about it. Well so said. It's, it's not, those two things are not connected. Well said. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Connors. If you okay. have any hard questions, I'm, okay. I'm happy to answer them. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church... I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Thanks again to Father Paul for observations. Now, Father Paul, I think right now, is in the Middle East. Of course, his schedule changes day by day, and hopefully he'll be back with us soon. I'm not sure how he gets back from the Middle East to um, to New York. I mean, but, he's saying, you know, he's saying he is a medical doctor, so yeah. he has special privileges. But I keep him in your prayers. 
keep him in your prayers. And, you know, he's got a tough time over there. Think about all the problems we're having here. They don't have ventilators in Lebanon. You know, you can you can say we don't have enough ventilators here. He doesn't have ventilators to take care of his sick people in Lebanon. He only has electricity six hours a day. Yeah, and I don't think, no offense to the population over there, I don't think they're social distancing the way they should. I don't think we'll get we'll ever get the real word. Okay. There are a lot of places. But as soon as Father Paul gets back, we'll get him back on our show. Listen, remember Father Paul in your prayers. Remember him, you know, if you if you want to make any donations, give us a call to his mission. But thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. We'll see you next week. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.